Hello and welcome to the Random Box podcast. Today I have Dr. Yang Yang Cheng, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. Before joining Yale, Yang Yang worked on the Large Hadron Collider for more than a decade and was a postdoctoral research associate at Cornell University and an LHC Physics Center distinguished researcher at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. Born and raised in China, Dr. Cheng received her PhD in physics from the University of Chicago in 2015 and her bachelor's in science from the University of Science and Technology of China School for the Gifted Young. She is a columnist at South China. Her essays have also appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Los Angeles Reviews of Books, Foreign Policy, MIT Tech Review, China File, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and other major publications. It's really great to have you here, Dr. Cheng. Thanks a lot for coming on board. Thank you so much for having me. So you have had a very, very fascinating path through the sciences, both the natural and the social sciences and all. So how did it all start for you? Was physics something you always wanted to pour into and particle physics more specifically? Was there any school teacher who sort of really inspired you during the science class or something of that sort? Or were there any familial inspirations to look up to? Oh, this is a great question. So. Um, I, I, I was born and raised in China, and, and I've been asked this question a lot, and, and I always wanted to be really, really honest with this, that when I was growing up, so I, I was born like in this medium-sized city, of course, in China, so it's like a population of uh, six to seven million at this point, um, but, but it's like, it was like a humble place when I was growing up, and so there was not a lot of resources. I, I did grow up on a university campus, but I was raised by a single mother who is a school teacher, and she has not been to her university herself, and so, so I was kind of like on this margins of both having access to education on one hand, on the other hand, also not having like immediate familial support in that sense. And, and when I was, um, and when I was growing up, science or, or any kind of just like academic excellence in general was seen as the way to, for, for, for personal advancement and for career advancement. And, and I did really well in school. And this is something that I do acknowledge. And that was an immense privilege. Um, I always say that had I grown up in a free country, I probably would not have become a scientist. When I was like in early adult lessons, so this would be in middle school, I was really interested in a lot of things like journalism or the law or just like humanities and social sciences in general. But on one hand, there was just like, I don't see how, how those could become a career on one hand. On the other hand, it was just like very, very quickly I understood that the political situation in China would not allow me to pursue these professions with, without compromise. And the physical sciences was like the only path within my reach that I could pursue without compromise. And, and so I was in the science experimental program for high school. And then I trained for the science Olympiads and I started um, university early. And, and I, at, at the very beginning at university, I was actually kind of like lost 
because I wasn't planning a career in the sciences. I just didn't really think it through. I was also 15 when I started university. And it was not until my junior year in university that I discovered or <laughs> discovered the wrong word. I was introduced to the field of experimental particle physics. And then I did fall in love with it. And, and that led to my career in particle physics. That's an extremely fascinating random work to get you where you are currently and all. And your story is something a lot of us in the supposed third world countries, or especially in countries like India and China can relate to, where the natural sciences and more specifically the engineering sciences and the medical sciences as well as the physical sciences are seen as a gateway to career advancement, professional growth and all. And for a lot of us to attain things that our parents couldn't because of their own circumstances and all. And this is something a lot of us can relate to and all. And so you talked about going into university and being sort of fascinated by physics of sorts. So was physics your predecided major or was it like you chose your major after your first or second year and physics is what sort of fascinated you the most? And how did you get into particle physics specifically? Yeah, um, I think maybe there is, a, <laughs> if I would go back to go back to the timeline a little bit, I think, I think as a very young child, I was fascinated by a lot of things. And I was interested in just like these fundamental questions about the universe. So I always had an interest in the sciences, but, but I always also have a lot of interest in, in a lot of other things. And so, um, and, and of course that was when I was a very young child, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of careers. It was just a, a very general curiosity. And later in high school, I, when I trained for the science Olympias, I trained primarily for physics and and also for math. And this was because I really did not like chemistry or biology. I was a very, very lazy person and I didn't want to remember all those terminology. And, and also like I, I liked abstract questions but also like not as abstract as mathematics. So physics was just like kind of like among the physical sciences, among, among the majors I was going to pursue, physics was what I liked the most. And, and when I was in, at university, because I attended a special program, otherwise, like most Chinese students, when they go to university, they would have chosen and, and been assigned to a major by the time they start. And because I was part of this special program, we do um, have the opportunity to choose our major at the end of our first year. And then, and that was when I chose physics. And because I went to the so-called University of Science and Technology of China, which is like the Caltech of China. And, and there was just like, it was just science and engineering majors. And so I chose physics. And, and then because of the curriculum set up at USTC, um, by the, if you're a physics major, I don't know much about the other majors. If you're a physics major at the end of your second year, you would also choose a specialization. And then starting from them, you would take more advanced courses. And so at the end of the sophomore year, uh, we would have professors from different fields um, in, in physics to come give us introductory uh, lectures and, and basically sell their discipline to us. And, and that was when I, I was first introduced to, to particle physics. And I was absolutely fascinated by mostly two things. On one hand, it was I was drawn to these fundamental questions of the universe. I wanted to 
uh, learn about just like the most fundamental building blocks of nature and their interactions. That was what um, is intellectually interesting to me. And I was also drawn to the mechanism of the research. And that is uh, also on two aspects. The first is just the hardware of it. And later in my physics career, I did spend a lot of time in, 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 in particle physics instrumentation in terms of designing um, particle detectors. So I really was fascinated by just like these gigantic machines, right? I worked on the Large Hadron Collider for over a decade. And it was just like the literally like the, the largest, most expensive and most sophisticated machinery ever built being used to study the smallest element. And that was something fascinating to me. And then the, on the other aspect of the apparatus, uh, the means of the research was I was drawn to these large international collaborations. And this in a way also coincides with my interest in politics that, that persists to this day and is my, prof is my profession now, was I was really, really curious to see how uh, scientists and, and engineers and just like science professionals from hundreds of institutions in dozens of countries and on uh, almost every continent and then working together on this one giant collaboration pursuing something that is beyond immediate material means how do these people come together how do these large collaborations govern themselves and how does it function so so these were the the initial questions that opened my eyes to this field and and what lured me or attracted me to to the field in the first place that's a and really so starting my junior year yes i became a particle physics major oh that's a really fascinating narration of the wonderful path that you took into physics and all and it was really fascinating to learn about your curiosity to explore the universe of souls that motivated you to foray into physics and all and you really described it well when you put out that research that is beyond our current material needs and all fundamentally curiosity driven research it is something that's extremely necessary uh, to fund or uh, to to carry out at all times and it's something that's at risk in these days where there is funding driven science and all and the funding is more geared towards the applied side of things where you have immediate applications but at the same time basic research by its inherent nature doesn't really have applications right at the onset but the questions that is try to tries to answer over the long run prove really really fundamental to solving and also uh, being applicable in the longer run on a far greater scale Yeah, sorry. <laughs> was, that, was that a comment or is, is there a question? Sorry. It was just a comment of sorts on your. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I yeah. So uh, coming to this, so you thought about pouring uh, into grad school. So was it a conscious decision to come to the US for it uh, because of the bunch of particle physicists around there suited your interests the best? And how did you choose Chicago as a school, or was it just one of the schools that that you? applied to and you got in and it was and the department at Chicago fit your interest the best or did you have some sort of uh, interest in going there and because of the fundamentally theory driven side of things there it really fascinated you and that's how you landed up there. Mm. 
So I say this, well, um, my desire to go and live in the United States well preceded me becoming a physicist. I, and I think this is not uncommon for, I'm 31, so it's not uncommon for, for, for Chinese uh, people of, of, of my generation or, or even now or, or, or slightly older, like once um, in, the, in the 80s, starting in the 80s when Chinese uh, students could go abroad to study. And, and there was this sense was just like the best of China would, would leave China. It is whether it's manufactured products for or young professionals, like being able to receive the approval to be accepted overseas and be able to go and settle overseas was seen as this epitome of personal success. And so when I was growing up in the 90s, it was very much like I, I did have childhood friends, like a handful of them whose parents emigrated and, and so they, 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 they left and, and they were like the subjects of our uh, collective envy. And, and so, so I've always thought that when I grow up, I would also go to the United States. I didn't know what I would do or what I would study, but I thought that was like the path because, uh, because that is where um, both, both as a way to, to find more opportunities and also as a way to prove oneself. And, and of course, that was like the very naive ideas of a child, but, but America did hold that appeal for me at a very young age. And, and then later, um, of course, at university, when I became a, a physics major and started studying particle physics, then it became just like more, more clear to me. Of course, the, the experiment is located in Europe at the Swiss-French border at the European Center for Nuclear Research. So, um, on the other hand, uh, US is like the, the largest single country contributor and, and the, the major universities that have the best um, particle physics groups are, are primarily in the US uh, among English speaking countries in particular. And so it was a pretty natural choice to, to go to the US. Of course, that was also a path that is better traveled. Uh, there, there are mo most, uh, actually I'm, this is a funny anecdote that I mentioned that went the university I went to for undergrad is called the University of Science and Technology of China. So its acronym is USTC. And then there is this joke was USTC also stands for United States Training Center. It was just about a third of its graduates would move <laughs> abroad for continued studies and primarily to the US. So that was a very common thing for me and my, my classmates and schoolmates in general to do. And for the University of Chicago, that is actually a more curious wrinkle and I and it'll probably be interesting for, for your listeners as well. Um, because the, the University of Chicago holds a particular place in, in my imagination or in, in the Chinese imagination, partly because of two of its alums back in the 1940s. This was uh, Chen Daoli and Chen Niyan, uh, or, or in Mandarin, Yang Zhenning and Li Zhengdao. And they were the two first Nobel laureates of Chinese origin. And both were uh, alumni of the uh, of University of Chicago and, and studied with Enrico Fermi in the late 1940s and, and then later went on to win the Nobel in the 50s for, and both were uh, theoretical particle physicists. And of course your research is in the fundamental sciences. And I don't think most people in the world, let alone in China, don't know what, what they did, but, um, but they, they themselves, they, they hold a, 
a very <laughs> a very high esteem among among the Chinese public, both were household names. And so I think a lot of people in China knew about University of Chicago primarily uh, in the older generation associating with, with that. And, and so the physics department at University of Chicago, of course, it is one of the best physics departments in the world, but, but its familiarity uh, among the Chinese public probably also owes a lot to its uh, famous alums. And, and so I think, I, uh, and, and, and more curiously, it was uh, one of the duo, Chen Yang, he was from my hometown. And then actually he studied briefly at my high school. And I would emphasize it's not at the same time since he's like 98 years old this year. And so, um, so, so I, think, I think I just had a certain sense of affinity to the University of Chicago. And then of course, because of his tradition, and this of course dates back to the, uh, to the very birth of nuclear and particle physics in the beginning of the 20th century. And then through the Manhattan Project, that the university had a strong institutional tradition in, in this discipline. And so um, I think pretty much once I started studying particle physics, I, I was asked this question once when I was like in my junior year of university, when I was preparing to um, take these standard tests to go to the US for grad school that I was asked by an American teacher at university, if you could go to any university in the US, where would you go to? And I said, the University of Chicago, which was an answer that actually like surprised her to an extent because I didn't say like Harvard or, or Yale or, <laughs> or, or Stanford. It was a very, very specific school. And so, so yeah, so, and I was uh, very fortunate in, in my applications that, that I, um, I did very, very well in, in the application. So I had a lot of choices in the US, but of course, once I got the offer from the University of Chicago, I knew that was where I would go to. That's a really fantastic journey that you took to get to Chicago. And as you talked about, Chicago has a very strong culture in physics, in theory side of things. Enrico Fermi was, based out of there once he emigrated to the US just like you did and all and he did some really fundamental work he spoke about uh, T.D. Lee and Cheng Ning Yang who won the Nobel Prize for I believe the their work on the parity violation and the weak interactions and all and there was a, also a famous story attached to another um, very famous Indian scientist who was based out of New Chicago for the majority of his time and that was Subramanian Chandrasekhar who also won the Nobel Prize in 1983 for his fundamental work on Chandrasekhar limits and all and there is a famous story about him traveling uh, from the Yorkies Observatory to teach a course every weekend at U Chicago. And two of the students there were T.D. Lee and Chen Ling Yang, who would win the Nobel even before he did, and all. And there is a very famous story attached to that and all. And once reminded of that, and as you spoke about a bit earlier about the whole international nature of collaborations and all, one that sees an LHC, a lot of it is also visible throughout the history of physics, especially in the US, where it was majority of immigrant scientists, right, from Fermi to Chandrasekhar, who did pioneering advances. And at that time, the inclusionary nature of the US did provide a very, very 
a strong culture of collaboration and cohesion that enabled the country of scientists over there to make giant strides in physics. So coming to this, so coming to your uh, experience in grad school, did you suffer from the ubiquitous imposter syndrome at any point of time? And how did you confront it? <laughs> This is a, this is such an interesting question. So <laughs> what I joke now is because uh, I, I started working at, at, at law school uh, this year. And I'll say that in my entire physics career, I've never <laughs> felt imposter syndrome. And now I'm at a law school and I do not have a, a legal education, right? I'd say, oh, I got my legal education from watching the best of the TV lawyers. And so I'm like literally an imposter at the law school. And, and so this is interesting. But coming back, <laughs> coming back to your question, um, no, I <laughs> actually, actually I, th I think this is because I, I never, I, I, I don't know what, what, what imposter syndrome is. In a sense, was just like I couldn't really relate to it when I was, um, and I think partly was because when I was, uh, when when I was growing up, I have I still have a very complicated relationship with my family, and I write about it uh, rather publicly, and so so I, I never received the kind of approval or or validation from them, just like from a very very young age. On the other hand, I was very, very fortunate in a sense was that I did extremely well at school. And so I, I kind of like was able to detach my sense of self and my own abilities from this kind of external validation. And, and of course, as a child, that was the, the validation from the people who are closest to you, which is your, your family. And, and then later when I, uh, when I mentioned I was, uh, Part of a, a part of a science experimental program for high school, and I trained for the science Olympiads, and and that was when like when I first became like quote unquote kind of like a, a science major, and and my mother disapproved of it because uh, she has rather traditional views about women and whether they are. Uh, <laughs> physiologically capable of doing science or, or things like that. And, and so, so she never approved of it, uh, but I also didn't seek or need her approval to pursue it. And, and of course, uh, she didn't approve of my choice of a, being a physics major at university. And, and so, so I always thought was like, this was my choice. And, and, and I, I was only doing physics, especially later when I became a part um, and an aspiring particle physicist, and then came to the US, I knew this was what I wanted to do in terms of both studying and also living in the US and pursuing this new field. And, and the sense of validation I needed was from myself, whether or not this was intellectually interesting to me, whether I felt free in my mind and, and in my life. And and so, so I, I think I was fortunate in that sense was that I was, was emotionally <laughs> secure. And, 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 and I still think grad school was, and in general, a positive experience for me. Not that it didn't have its, its share of hardships and things that we can talk about, but, 
But in terms of imposter syndrome, I, um, I, I don't, I don't think that was a problem for me. Those are some really recent points. And you talked about uh, undergoing some hardships and all during grad school. So was it related to sort of uh, picking out problems and all or getting stuck on something? Or was it some enti something entirely different of sorts? Oh, no, I, I, well, I, I think doing science, of course, there will be technical difficulties or like, technical duress. But that 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 I wouldn't call hardship, right? Like science wouldn't be interesting if all if all the answers are are, are predetermined and, and known. So so I think not, not knowing and, and and failing through the process was not only um, the the essential part of doing not only an inevitable part of doing science, but one say it was an essential part of doing science. And so so that was not not the problem. I think. I think it was just, uh, well, I came to the US when I was 19. And so I was just young and and it was a new country, a new culture, a new environment. I had a lot to figure out. And so I, I I don't want to romanticize that period as if it was just like all rosy and smooth sailing. It was a much better life than I had ever lived in China. And that is true. And that was very important in terms of how my experience and the context of it shaped my perception of it. Um, in the moment, of course, it's different in retrospect, and so. But but there was of course <laughs> uh, difficulties just in terms of of life in general of figuring out who I am, what I want to do, and whether I was on the right path. That's something a lot of us can relate to, and especially someone as precocious as you in a very young age and all, and, it, and in an alien country of sorts and all, and it is something that many do struggle with and all, and so was your experience and all. So how, when it came to choosing a project of sorts to work on your grad school to work for your PhD and that will enthuse you for the next four or five years. So did you already have anything that you always wanted to work on or was it like you rotated in a couple of labs and all before you narrowed down on a problem? Hmm. So I, I think I think this partly is uh, somewhat more unique to my field of experimental particle physics and in particular because um, I, I was training in collider particle physics, and that is a field that is highly consolidated on a handful of experiments. And, and mostly on um, if one does hadron collider um, experiments in my generation, that is to work on a large hadron collider. And so when I was first drawn to particle physics in a halfway through college, I, I knew I want to do experimental particle physics and in particular collider physics. And so, so that was specific and, and that was what partly brought me to Chicago. And so I, I joined the, uh, the Atlas group at the University of Chicago right away. Uh, the Atlas group, well, Atlas and CMS are the two largest experiments on the Large Hadron Collider. And so, so I, I knew uh, which experiment in general I would work on but because of the nature of these large experiments, that was just like basically the entire field of collider particle physics. And of course I wasn't, I didn't have the, the knowledge of what specific problems I wanted to solve. Um, 
I am, I remain very grateful to my undergraduate research supervisor in China. Uh, when I was just stepping into the field, he said something about experimental particle physics. There are three branches of it, on software, hardware, and physics analysis. And a qualified part experimental particle physicist needs to be trained well in at least two of these three branches. And so um, I, I knew that I <laughs> probably wasn't particularly interested in, in, build, in, in, in very specific things about the software part. I knew that I wanted to do physics analysis. And so it comes to the hardware part. And I always said in, earlier that I was intrigued about the in instrumentation of the, um, of the project. And so at, at Chicago, um, and this is also a, a fortunate thing about, about my path, and because of, the, because of the nature of experimental particle physics is very resource extensive for individual institutions. And so there are relatively few universities in the US or well, in other countries I'm less familiar with, but in general, it is true. There are relatively few universities in the US that have collider particle physics as a, a subject uh, at all. And, and there are fewer universities that have a strong tradition in hardware. And University of Chicago is one of them that has a very strong tradition in hardware. And so I started um, doing hardware uh, or more particularly, I, was, uh, I did some, uh, some studies of, of a particular type of particle detector that measures hadronization uh, called, uh, called hadron, um, a calorimeter and and then um, I studied like the, basically the, the trigger and the readout system so is the the mechanism to filter the to record and filter the events that are interesting to physics and so so these were the projects that I started with and and also because I was starting I didn't have a lot of ideas about what kind of physics questions are interesting to me so it was not until basically maybe almost not quite halfway, but probably like my third year in grad school that I started working on more specific physics problems. And that was brought, what brought me to uh, working on collider searches for dark matter that constituted uh, a major part of my physics career. And I did that for like the next basically 10 years. Ah, so your postdoctoral work was also an extension of the graduate work that you did, or it was uh, a bit more different of sorts? Mm. Well, um, on, I, I, think, I think that is the, the answer is both yes and no. Um, so so for, for my postdoctoral research at Cornell, I, so I mentioned earlier that there are the two largest experiments on the Large Hadron Collider, ATLAS and CMS. The two are have like conceptually they, they are they're they are similar on a macro level in terms of their conceptual designs. These are two complementary competing experiments. Um, of the specific technical details, they are also different. Of course, they are not two identical experiments, and that would <laughs> that would be uh, redundant. And so, um, so, so I worked on Atlas for my PhD for six years, and then I cro basically crossed the LHC ring metaphorically to join the CMS experiment for my postdoctoral research. And so that, uh, that was a new experiment. It's still a new detector. So there was a lot of, and a new collaboration. 
So a lot of uh, and and the new software environment and things. So there were a lot of like new technical things I need to learn. There were new relationships I needed to build in terms of uh, my reputation within the collaboration in terms of uh, finding new collaborators. And, and also in terms of the physics uh, itself, I did work on, uh, for the hardware part, I worked on a very, very different project that I worked on silicon tracking detectors uh, for my postdoctoral research. That was something that I did not have experience on from, from graduate school. And that was uh, what intrigued me because I wanted to try something new. And then I knew that I had like the, the perception and, and the, the, the discipline, the work ethic, and also the general knowledge of particle physics. And so I could uh, learn a, a new thing. And, and it was also a really great opportunity about uh, we were designing a completely new detector from scratch. And so it was a great opportunity for a young particle physicist to join this kind of a hardware instrumentation project from the ground up. And, and that was what, that was actually the main reason I chose Cornell for my postdoctoral research. And that was on the uh, instrumentation and hardware side. On the physics side, I continued with searches for dark matter in general. So that was a continuation from graduate school. On the technical aspects of it, um, I did make changes that I was doing different things um, with the search, searching for different types of dark matter that leave different types of physical signatures in the detector. So on a technical level, that was the difference as well. That's a really brilliant overview of the fantastic research that you did at the frontiers of particle physics for nearly a decade, all through grad school and postdoctoral research. So something that I'm curious to know, you talked about your undergraduate research mentor who had some sagacious insights for you when you were starting off and all. And who are some mentors who have inspired you over the course of time and you find fascinating journey through science and life. And what are some learnings that you yourself pass on to your own mentees? Mm. Well, this is, um, <laughs> well, I think, I think this is an, and this is an interesting question because I think I mentioned because I have an, a, a, a complicated relationship with, with my family and, 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 and basically like a, a difficult <laughs> family environment growing up. And so, uh, and I think as a, as a young person, as a child or, or a teen, one still needs some kind of external guidance. And I wasn't able to get it from my family members. Um, so, so there were teachers that were important to me growing up. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think it was career advice in, in the beginning, or I think there's something my high school math teacher said to me that was very, very important to me when, she, when he told me that I should not let my mother destroy me. And, and that was a very, very important validation uh, for a 14 year old to receive, to know that I was not crazy, that it was not my fault. And, and I should have faith and trust in myself and my choices and what I want out of life. So I think that was the first data point I would give in answering your question. And then later at university, I mentioned my undergraduate research supervisor who um, 
was and remains a very important person to me uh, in, in introducing me, well, in, in introducing me to particle physics research. I did uh, do my undergraduate uh, a research project and later um, a, a thesis with him on, on a different experiment in, based in China. And, and also just in general, this attitudes towards science and these macro level questions, as I mentioned, on about what an experimental particle physics physicist does. And, and then he said something very important to me when um, basically around the days of my graduation, now that I already accepted the offer to University of Chicago. And he was very, very encouraging to me through the entire application process. And I remember like basically my final days at university and my final days in China, that he called me to his office and he told me that I know that you're going to the United States very soon. And he himself had um, spent a good chunk of his career in Europe and the United States as well. And he said, um, I, have, I would not give you academic advice because the University of Chicago would take care of that. However, I would give you three pieces of life advice. First, be healthy. Second, be safe. And third, be aware and respect the law. And, and I found those to be extremely wise, like even in, in retrospect now, like 12 years later, it was it's still something that, that I think <laughs> um, like, like a, a father would say, or, 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 or a parent or just, just an elder would say. And, and it's something that is like this kind of universal life advice one imparts to the young, to someone who is going to some place very new. And so, so, so he and he's very important to me. And then I came to the United States, of course, and my PhD advisor is, is an extremely dear person to me. And, and basically, well, I've, uh, the, and, and we became closer uh, after I graduated as well. And, and I'm very close with his wife and with his family in general. I say that he and his wife are basically like my, my Jewish parents. And, and, that, and then that I feel extremely fortunate about to, to have this special relationship, to have uh, someone who have, have been very uh, important to me in my career and but whose importance to me is way beyond my, my career. It's just someone whom I love and can trust with my life. And, 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 that, and that is a, a, very, a very dear thing to hold. Absolutely. Those are some really, really great insights and all. And the, you know, those mentors of yours were really inspiring in their own way and, and in the extremely pleasing advice that they gave you that is applicable to a lot of us and all and things. And so something that I'd like to, this is something that really, so from particle physics to switching to studying the history of science and technology and exploring them in your fantastic journalistic articles and all and heading to Yale Law School. So how did this switch come about right from a large hadron collider to switching tracks and heading away to a law school to work on these intersections? 
intersections of science and technology with history and politics and all. So how did this switch come about? Or was it always in the making, considering you spoke about how very early on you were always interested in sort of pouring into journalism and something along those lines, but science and technology what commanded your attention for a majority of your years before you came to this? Yeah, this is again a great question and a, and a difficult one. Um, I, I think I think well, it, it ties with what I uh, said earlier. I think it's still like me being true to myself. Then I always knew that I had these interests in in journalism and as well as in in, in law and in politics because I am I have been and I have always been as interested in the fundamental laws of nature as I am in the governance of people. But it was just the political system and the social environment in my birth country that denied me the opportunity to pursue the latter. And, and so when I came to the US, I always knew that I came to the US, well, uh, primarily like to, to, to study particle physics and become a particle physicist. That is true, but I also knew that physics was not the entirety of my life. I was also young. I didn't know what what was what else was there. Of course, and I uh, I didn't know what the U.S. had to offer. I knew it had a lot to offer, and it was up to me to to discover it. And so, and this is also partly what uh, Chicago attracted me was because I wanted to be in a major city. And of course, I came to the US in 2009. And I came to Chicago. So this was right after Barack Obama's election. And, and I was intrigued by that to an extent as well. I of course, I didn't know what US politics was about or how even the presidential election works or anything. But I just felt it was like a large dynamic city that had so much culture, so much history, so much diversity that I could explore. And, and in the course of finding out about Chicago, I could find out about myself. And so I did explore a lot of different things when I was in Chicago. Of, <laughs> it was fashion <laughs> that, that I dabbled in the beginning a little bit. And, um, I, and then uh, with the with the press, uh, with the re-election campaign 2012, I volunteered on um, Barack Obama's re-election campaign on and to call up voters in swing states because, of course, as a foreign national, I couldn't vote or donate, but I could volunteer my time, and so so I, I spent some time doing that and and just exploring and and then later uh, in 2013. The, uh, the Institute of Politics opened at the University of Chicago, which is a, a, non, a nonpartisan extracurricular institution that was founded by uh, one of Barack Obama's chief advisors, David Axelrod. And, and I spent a lot of time with Institute of Politics. I was uh, later elected with student leadership. And so I was not just like an, an, an audience member or an observer. I was part of its programming team and then I learned a lot about American politics on one hand, on the other hand about just like event planning and an institution, how institutions outside of physics might work and a lot of these things. I made a lot of great friends. 
And, and that was very important to me as well. And I always say that University of Chicago gave me the education of a lifetime beyond the degree program. And, and institute politics was an integral part of my Chicago education that I think. Um, I was also introduced to, to journalism um, to some extent uh, through, the, uh, through the institute politics because it was not just like talking about electoral politics, it was also like international politics and uh, governance as well as political reporting. And, and then I came to graduate and came to Ithaca uh, for my postdoc at Cornell. And that was a very, very different place. Of course, I loved, the, uh, loved Cornell the University. I loved my colleagues there, but Ithaca was a, a very small town uh, in a very secluded area. And it's very, very different from Chicago. And, and I didn't have these kinds of outlets for my other passions and interests. And, and I was sad and bored uh, in the beginning when I was in Ithaca, this was 2016. And, and so I was trying to look for an outlet of was just like, there were not these underground institutions and, and things, organizations there that I could put my time and energy into. So what, what, what should I do? And of course, 2016, as we know, was a year of seismic political events. And those also um, spurred me to think about my own responsibilities of um, be outside of immediate physics research. And, and so that was what brought me to start writing. I had never written in Chinese in creatively. Of course, I wrote for like school or for homework and, and exams, but, but I was never like, I never dreamed of a career as a writer in Chinese. And, and I never wrote uh, in English before that other than technical writing for, for papers, uh, physics papers. And so that was a very, but, but I just felt that I had things to say. Uh, I've crossed countries and political systems. I've been trained as a particle physicist and working in a large international collaboration. And I have ideas about, about politics and, and also how um, things are going in China and also things how things are going in the US that I wanted to say that I didn't see being said from people that share my perspectives or my background. And so that was how I started writing in 2017. And, and, and that was not as a career, I was just driven by this urge to express and also writing is a form of thinking. So this was an urge to, to think, to discover more about the world as well as myself and to share these discoveries with an audience. And of course I had no idea how to do it and made mistakes and a lot of rejections and everything. But, but I think I also did have something to say. And so I did, was able to publish and, and one thing led to another. I, I don't know, this was a really, really long winded answer, uh, but, but this was also just like, this was such a weird path that was just like no one else, I, not, not to my knowledge, ha has walked. And so, uh, so I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody else. I was really just driven by this, by on one hand, a cur an intellectual curiosity 
On the other hand, also a certain sense of civic duty or even moral obligation, however presumptuous it is to say. But but I did feel that like there are a lot of these questions about about how these uh, how technology is being used for and and how that contributes to to state oppression and other forms of exploitation, and how China has become more powerful and richer and more technologically advanced and as well as more authoritarian. And that troubled me deeply and I wanted to be able to contribute to that discourse. And, and now of course I was still in, in physics, this is 2018 to 2019. And, and it's a, a profession that I love deeply. And, and another thing that I feel fortunate about in my physics career was the longer I was in it, the more I was in love with it. And, uh, and, and but, but I never imagined it as a lifelong career. Uh, the, the, the metaphor I use is I imagine my physics career as that of a professional athlete. So of course I was passionate about it. I loved it and I was competitive. I wanted to be as good as I can be in the time that I was doing it. But it's not a lifelong thing. And at some point, I might leave and do something else. Um, while being an athlete shapes a person, right? Shapes a person, not just both the body and as well as the mind, the way a person moves through the world and how one approaches things. And I think the analogy also applies to physics. And, and so um, basically through 2019, I made the decision that I feel this um, at the end of my postdoctoral appointment with Cornell, that was when I wanted to try something new and, and do something that is more tied in with studies of uh, the, the ethics and governance of science uh, with a focus on China and their global implications. But that was the subject I wanted to pursue. I had no idea how it translates into a job. And of course, I'm also a foreigner. And so it limits a lot of um, options. I couldn't work for the US government or uh, get a lot of these fellowships that are exclusive to US citizens. Um, but, but I felt I was doing something that was different. Um, by 2019, I've been writing and publishing ra rather consistently. And I also started my column uh, at SubChina in 2019. So I was building a portfolio. I was building a profile, a reputation in the field of China studies and technology studies. And I, uh, I felt it was, I wanted to see if it can translate into a career. And, uh, and I applied to a bunch of things. I got a lot of more rejections. And of course, I applied to things I was like wildly unqualified for and later when they and I saw who they hired, they hired like, like former under secretary of state or something. And I was just like, this is so hard. <laughs> Hilarious was just like, I had no idea what these jobs entailed, but like, it was like science and policy and governance or something, international affairs. And so I applied to some of these things. Um, and that was, uh, that was 2019 to 2020. And then of course, uh, the pandemic happened. And, and I already said, uh, was already made up my mind that I would try something new. I would leave physics by the end of um, the calendar year when my, uh, when my appointment with Cornell expires. And um, but then with, with the pandemic, uh, my, my friends were joking. It was just like, I chose like literally like probably like the worst time in the century to change careers when there was just like literally no, 
no, no position openings and every university has hiring freezes. Um, so I, I think, um, I think again, it was just like, it was just a, a stroke of extraordinary fortune that, that I had actually multiple opportunities to continue on this path uh, in, with regards to science and governance uh, in China and, and globally. And then I, I, I decided to come to Yale. And yeah, so, so yeah, so it was just um, a lot of it was also an owing to personal relationships. And, and I think that is important. On the other hand, I, I think it is also fair to say that I do have a lot to offer. And, and, and I think my, my credentials do speak um, at a certain volume by that point. And so, so, so there, there were opportunities that, that I was qualified for. So, so that's what led to my current position. That's a really, really fascinating journey of sorts. And it was a true random walk into it. And as you talked about sort of facing rejections, it is something that one doesn't know to the academia. There is always the anonymous reviewer to rejecting your papers for many different reasons. And then there are many ways in which you get rejected in academia. But as you talked about, it's all about taking things in your stride and strutting along and all. And the work that you're doing currently is an eminently important one, especially in these times. As you talked about, the 2016 election was a seismic shift in global politics and all. And as this is the age where there are revolutionary technologies out there like AI, quantum computing, machine learning, uh, CRISPR, and many other revolutionary technologies, which have the potential to both sort of help humanity progress at the same time it if it falls into hands of western interests and all it can sort of suppress people and all and oppress them as we are seeing worldwide how these systems when they are used by cultural systems by police and all it's seen that because of the embedded biases into them women and people of color disproportionately get are at the face the brunt of it and all and this is something this is a very important point to talk about and all because as we talked about these are some revolutionary technologies that have the potential to revolutionize humanity as a whole and all so coming to this you talked about sort of um, currently exploring these themes and all as a foreigner of sorts and all. So something that I'm interested to know in your journey through physics and the work that you're currently doing, has ever disparity or bias and discrimination due to your gender or ethnicity a problem for you? People have been sort of discriminating you or sort of maligning you on that basis and all. And how did you tackle that? Hmm. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> well, the, the answer to the first part of the question is yes. And, um, and I don't, don't think anyone can actually answer no to that question unless they are willfully blind or being disingenuous. Um, <laughs> well, but I, I say this, right, uh, because I mentioned earlier, when I was growing up, like, uh, 
I was raised by a single mother who is very traditional and, and who has internalized a lot of these uh, uh, um, patriarchal ideas about what a woman's place in society is and what a woman can or cannot do and what her career should be and what her primary objective in life should be. And so, so my initial friction or, or <laughs> obstacles um, with regards to my gender came from my mother, which was also like a great lesson for me um, to, to see how oppressed people can also contribute to their own oppression. And I think actually I learned a lot about how to understand, observe, and analyze power dynamics from my relationship with my mother. And, um, and, I, I, and I should also say this, that, that Chinese society is profoundly racist as well. And this was something that I was not particularly aware of when I was growing up in China, partly because of my youth and ignorance, partly because of my privilege, because I am Han Chinese, which is the, the majority ethnicity. So um, in that sense was just my ethnicity was invisible. I did not need to think about uh, my, my, my ethnicity and, uh, and or, or my Chinese identity. It was just something that, that felt uh, self-evident. <laughs> and, and, and so um, th there is also internalized um, racial hierarchies with regards to other races in China. And that was something I was aware of when I was in China. Uh, this uh, almost sense of worship or uh, reverence for white people and, and, and also a discrimination towards um, darker races, including uh, people in, in South and Southeast Asia and in Africa. Um, but, but it was not like a dominant uh, theme in my life or, because I grew up around just Han Chinese people in general. Um, and then of course I came to, I came to Chicago and, and I think my education on, on race and on ethnicity, um, the primary part of it owes, and I owe that to the, uh, to the city and its history and its fighters across time and in the present, its activists and the people who have um, paid a very high price and, and continue to do extremely difficult and, and extremely important work. And, and so I, I think, I think in what, what has, um, what has changed to some extent with my current profession um, is these issues become more acute. Because when I was in physics, of course, the, the academy, the, the profession and society are at large are, are racist and are, are sexist and ableist and all that. Um, but, but elementary particles themselves are, are not. So there was sense, it was just like there was an escape that I could go into and and, and all, uh, when I was troubled by issues of politics or just current affairs, physics was my, my mental escape. 
it was a place that always offered me serenity. And, and now the current affairs, these <laughs> inequalities and oppressions of the world are the subject of, of my study. And, and in a sense, so, so these things become more acute. And of course, because of both the COVID pandemic, as well as the deterioration of US-China relations, a lot of other uh, political and geopolitical factors, my Chinese identity becomes something that is more acutely felt as a matter of personal safety as well. And so now um, I, think, I, 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 think, I think this becomes something that, that I'm both learning about and thinking about and, and also just like constantly uh, coming into uh, conflict with or having frictions about. And I think this is also uh, something that is interesting for me to observe having crossed careers. Because of course, physics is a profession that is dominated by men in my birth country and dominated by white men globally and here in the US. And now my profession is China studies. Yeah. <laughs> And it's a field that is even more dominated by white men and, and which is amazing in the sense because as a young-ish Chinese woman of both Chinese ethnicity as well as Chinese nationality, to see myself both as a professional, as an academic, as a researcher in this field. On the other hand, my identity is a subject of, of study and it's constantly being objectified or tokenized or uh, morphed into a geopolitical concept or my humanity being erased in a lot of conversations that I am a part of. And, and that's something that is, um, that is still a, a relatively new thing for me to, to observe and to see and to understand. That's a really um, fantastic overview of the experiences that you have had. And as you talked about, these are experiences a lot of people can relate to both inside and outside of academia and all. And as you talked about, these are some very pressing issues in light of the geopolitical realities of today. And that's where you and your identity comes into even more prominence of sorts and all. And something uh, as you, uh, you have been exploring these themes in your current work and all, and you talked about the intrinsic global nature of collaboration in, uh, in the LHC and across many other scientific projects, especially in physics, where you talked about how it's impossible for a single organization or an entity or even a country for that matter to do everything on its own and a global collaboration of sorts is needed. This is something that we see in the uh, ITR project in France on the thermonuclear reactor and many other things and all. So how do you see the fate of these giant science projects that entail nationwide collaborations, worldwide collaborations with people from different backgrounds and from different countries. How, what do you see is in the reckoning for these sorts of projects in light of the geopolitical realities of today? Mm. 
Yeah, so uh, coming back to what I mentioned earlier, right? When I was first introduced to the field of particle physics, and, and it was by a professor who was not my uh, undergrad supervisor, but was another professor. And, and he, um, he, he, he worked um, on an experiment at Fermilab earlier and then worked on the Large Hadron Collider. And so he was presenting this as, right, this was an experiment that was literally built on the border, on a Swiss-French border. And then later when I learned more about the history of CERN, right, it had this really, really cosmopolitan ideal, a really idealistic element that is tied to its founding when it was founded in the 1950s, shortly after World War II. And there was this mission, partly a scientific mission, but partly also a political mission was to see whether or not a collaboration in the fundamental sciences could help bring together a broken continent that had been at, at war for, for so long and, and was decimated by war. And, and, and so that was something that, that was really inspiring to me as a young person, as a student. And, and it still holds that inspirational value, but I do put a caveat to it now that, that I don't want to present CERN or the Large Hadron the collaborations at Large Hadron Collider as some kind of ideal model of scientific collaboration. Of course, it is located in, in Europe and, and its, its sense of, of community uh, is still a very, a very first world vision. And, and even if it aspires to extend to uh, quote unquote, like the, the larger global South, um, it still faces a lot of these barriers with regards to just not just geopolitics, but just very basic national borders and, and resources and, and opportunities. And so, so that there is that. And of course, even at CERN itself, even through this COVID pandemic, like last year, when this is an experiment that is built on the national border and very much um, reflects this pan-European ideal. But when each individual countries start shutting down their borders as a response to a pandemic, when Swiss, Switzerland and France asserted their borders, then it literally cuts through this experiment and just <laughs> creates very, very uh, uh, real issues for, for a lot of uh, colleagues who may be living in France and have their doctors in Switzerland and such. And so, so even like national borders, as long as they exist, they can be asserted and they can create problems. And, and that is a constant conflict with any kind of egalitarian cosmopolitan ideal that a scientific collaboration may espouse. And on the other hand, since I mentioned, right, like there are particle physics is a highly, especially Kind of particle, experimental particle physics, highly consolidated profession, consolidated on, on a handful of ex experiments and it's extremely resource extensive. And, and it has very much been a first world profession uh, in terms of how its major experiments are located in, in US, Europe, Japan, like some of the richest countries. Um, and on the other hand, I, I think the the democratization of science globally 
also needs to consider take into account these uh, geopolitical considerations. For example, a lot of my research has been on thinking about scientific collaborations, say between the US and China. And on one hand, one can say, of course, science is a global enterprise and it shouldn't, the results of the research shouldn't belong to any single, single nation or state. On the other hand, one also needs to understand the geopolitical implications, the political implications and the potential complicities in being part of these collaborations, like how and how are the results being used? How are, uh, whom benefits both materially and also just as a form of prestige, just by um, being part of this collaboration? Am I contributing to a country's propaganda? Am I contributing to a country's surveillance apparatus? Um, who funds it and how this source of funding, what kind of political implications may this source of funding imply? Would that limit my ability in the future to critique this government or critique its policies? Uh, what are the safety implications for my collaborators who may be in different um, political situations because of their nationality, ethnicity? religious beliefs, et cetera. And I think these are all questions that scientists needs to think about when they, um, well, when they do their science, whether it is with their own home governments, uh, home country, home governments, or with their international partners. And I think just like a very, uh, on one hand, this cosmopolitan ideal is remains an ideal. On the other hand, it also just simply repeating that ideal is not enough. It needs to be, uh, it, ne it needs to have nuance. It needs to be placed into context. And, and a person needs to be honest with oneself that we all live in an unjust world. We operate within unjust systems and we all make our compromises in order to live, to work, to survive. And, and these implications uh, needs to be thought through, at very least, not dismissed or, or, or looked over. Absolutely. Those are a really terrific elucidation of those things. And as you spoke about uh, the funding needs and all, and uh, something um, that I'm curious to know, how do you see this whole curiosity-driven science and all? Because it inherently depends on funding. And over the years, it has largely come from the state side because uh, companies as a whole, in today's world, the tech companies that do fund research, they do it solely to optimize their money-making prowess. The Bell Labs of the days of your don't exist anymore. And curiosity-driven science is fundamentally something that's seen in university academic settings alone. So how do you see the future of it evolving out as even governments of the day start pushing for more application-oriented and application-driven sciences and all? And how do you see basic science as a whole sustaining itself over the next decades of science? Well, um, my well, my my own, <laughs> of course, my my own politics is on the left, 
And so I believe very, very strongly in, in the public, in, in knowledge belongs in the commons. It should be a public good. And, and, and I think it is, it's something that is, that is simple to say, but it's actually something that is, it's complicated. And, and I don't necessarily think the dichotomy is just in state funded or privately funded. Right, because well, of course, uh, it's probably also related with my background because I come well, for China. It's a it's a one party authoritarian state, and of course, it has private companies, but the private companies are also under direct control of the government, and and the line between the public and the private is very much blurred, and and and, and just because something is funded by the state doesn't mean it is funded for the public good. And, and I think that that is a, a very important distinction. And, and here in the US, when, when it's on uh, the political system, of course, it's different. And, and the public have a lot more power and, and a lot more input in terms of um, in terms of what kind of uh, at least who governs them, um, but but this, uh, some something being funded by the government doesn't mean it goes to the public good either. Right? <laughs> A lot of these like private space industries or 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 even like Silicon Valley companies that if we look at their history, they got their, these technology companies, they got their start from government contracts as well. And so, so I, think, I think the more important thing here is not necessarily um, whether it is being funded on paper by a government entity or by a, a privately held entity. The more important thing here is probably, it is, is in the fundamental power dynamics who are the ones in power? Uh, they may be the head of a company or the head of a government, but they're, they're the ones in power. And 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 who? <laughs> uh, what what does this work serve? Does it serve the most powerful, or does it serve the marginalized? And and I always consider my own loyalties is always with the marginalized. That is where I come from. It is where I stand. And, and is where my, my research interests lie because it is where the fault lines in, in governance in society are manifested. And, and it is also where my, my mission is. It, is. it is towards empowerment and towards liberation for the most oppressed, for the most marginalized. That's a truly great point you made. And as you talked about, it's very important to be aware of these things as you very recently stated that there's this whole veneer of objectivity that's attached to the sciences in particular. And at the end of the day, yeah, the particles and particle physics aren't uh, biased or discriminated against you. But at the same time, people who carry out these enterprises are humans after all. And now, very human biases and notions do creep into that. And it's very important to be cognizant of our privilege and all, and to work towards a more egalitarian society. That's a really fascinating point you made. And tying into this, uh, as a, on a 
concluding note i'd like to ask you where do you see particle physics heading in the future considering your both intrinsic and extrinsic experience in it and all there is a lot of talk and murmurs about particle physics having reached an impasse and bigger ellipses not being the answers to some of the pressing challenges of the day and there have been some other uh, other fields of physics in the meanwhile have also grown by a lot a lot of rapid advances are being made in those things so where do you see particle physics going its in the future hmm. <laughs> so i <laughs> i think i think it is interesting to um to hear some of these some of these debates that uh, how, how how many of these are are scientifically driven and how much of these are ego driven and I think this partly ties to your comment about like scientists are people. And so, and of course, because this is a fundamental science and, and the questions are, are, the questions themselves are still being defined and being shaped. And of course the answers are unknown. So, so it is open and, and what kind of uh, instruments we build to solve them are, are open questions. So I don't want to disparage any kind of proposal from any of my colleagues. And, and I believe they are made out of good scientific objectives. Um, I, I do see that a lot of these debates or disagreements are, are not fundamental scientific disagreements. They may be more um, personality driven and um, and, and I don't, uh, I don't necessarily think that's uh, that that should be be the primary factor in in considering what um, what we want for the future of this field. Of course, a very very important factor here is politics, and and in the end, one um, one needs to understand that uh, the experiments we're going to have are the experiments that are going to be funded. Um, but I also think that this is not a, a predetermined trajectory, right? Like what kind of world we want to live in uh, depends on us. So what kind of field, future for particle physics? It depends, it's also some, not something you're saying, oh, it's up to politicians what they would fund. It's also up to people in the profession as well as the general public to demand it. And so um, I, I am an optimist in the sense as in, I believe very strongly in what Marian Kaba says that hope is a discipline. And I do remain very hopeful for the future of particle physics. I think that as we uh, improve our technology, there are a lot of, and also open our, our, our eyes to new, paradigms of, of, of search, new types of physics that can be done. Uh, there are still a lot of work to do that are, are, are immensely fascinating and it's, it's, it remains my regret um, that, that I'm not personally a part of it anymore. But, but I, I think it has, a, it has a bright future if the people who love it and the people who believe in it 
continue to believe in it and advocate, it, advocate for it and also be honest with themselves through this process? Those are some truly magnificent points. And that's an absolutely fascinating note to conclude on. This extremely fascinating conversation on your stellar random works through science and life. And finally, as a random works podcast tradition, which three people <laughs> would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a random work? Hello. Yeah, yeah can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So finally, as a random works podcast tradition, which three people really like to come and divulge their own experience in a random work? Mm. It's a really great question. It's a difficult one. Actually, I would like this is probably me uh, <laughs> betraying my own ignorance, but I wasn't sure what um, do you are you looking for people of a particular uh, demographic or profession or 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 country of residence or, or something like I wasn't sure anyone <laughs> in your acquaintances you know, we had a chance to get you on board when Pratiti herself came on board back in January and all so it can be anyone in your circles who you feel whose story is the one that deserves to be heard and heard by the listeners of this podcast and all and it can be typically anyone who has been in academia at some point or the other they might not necessarily be in academia right now and that's perfectly fine but anyone from any place who has had a brief interlude with academia that will also work ah okay um well um I don't know if uh, Pratiti had already mentioned her, but I would the first name I'll give is Katrina Miller. She is an, a particle physicist, uh, a PhD candidate at my alma mater at the University of Chicago. And she is embarking on a career in science journalism. She is a fellow at uh, Wired, uh, the magazine this summer, and, and she is being uh, writing. And she also has been very active in, in social um advocacy and and a lot of uh, social justice issues so uh, she's a, <laughs> a fascinating person whom I got to know after I had graduated and it's just been remarkable to watch her growth um, and then the second name I'll mention is uh, Savannah Tate she is a postdoc at Princeton now uh, she is also a particle physicist uh, by profession and, and we were colleagues for many years actually I first got to know Savannah when she was an undergrad and I was a grad student at University of Chicago and and we worked on some dark matter searches together and then she later got her PhD at Yale and she now works at Princeton and and she now does uh, a lot of work in terms of using machine learning for um, for particle physics on one hand on the other hand it also branched out to understanding the ethics of, um, of AI and other emerging technologies. And uh, you want three names, right? <laughs> oh my God, uh, what, is the, what, what is the third name I, I can- uh, You're conflicted can... about two more of them, so more the merrier. So it's, you don't need not restrict yourself to three. So that's all. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's um, it's just 
it's just uh and, and do, do you only want scientists or i don't know what typically anyone in academia they can be the natural sciences or the social sciences who have okay. have been in academia oh, they might not necessarily be in academia right now and that works perfectly well ah i see oh that is interesting okay so so the third name i would mention is um um <laughs> Lev Nachman and um <laughs> he is um he is in in China studies and he just uh finished his PhD at the uh, uh University of California Irvine and he's starting a postdoc at Harvard and he is a specialist on uh student movements and uh and and politics in, in Taiwan and and just like youth participation in politics, and and so uh, it, it it's a it's a fascinating subject, and he's done a lot of field work in student protests or youth led protests in Hong Kong and in Taiwan, or in the Great uh, Sinosphere in general, and and also there is a little <laughs> fun wrinkle is that his brother uh, Ben Nachman is a long time <laughs> colleague of mine in in particle physics, and so the joke was always that um, I'm like the person who like transfers the the careers of of both Nachman brothers and and he's just um, he, he's a brilliant person and he used to host a podcast as well for the Los Angeles Review of Books called uh, the, the the Oolong channel where I was um, a guest on and so I would uh, I would mention him <laughs> that's an absolutely stellar set of nominations and thank you thank you for coming and divulging your experience in a very fascinating random world Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, being a, a, an absolute joy and, and I learned a lot from our conversation as well. <laughs>